Um, we're going to wrap up a series that we've been in for the last, uh, this is our seventh week in the series, from the book of Ruth. And uh, the series has been called The Outsider. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in to Ruth chapter 4. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, if you, if, like if you don't bring one, start bringing a Bible. Now, it can be an electronic Bible, it can be you know, a hard copy, whatever you want. But just start bringing a Bible so that you can follow along, take notes, um, and it'll change your life. It'll be something that you want to go back to. And you, you, you can see the next time you go through the book of Ruth on your own, you can see, you know, here are the things that I said years ago, and here are the things that, that God is doing, uh, was good doing in my life during that period of time. So I would encourage you to bring a Bible. Next week, we're going to start a new series. I'm really excited about it. The series is going to be called Vision, uh, Evansville, and Beyond. Uh, we've been meeting as a church for about three months, and I want to want to just bring us back to what, what are we here for? You know, vision in a church, vision in any organization leaks very quickly. You know, you, you know what you're there for, and then all of a sudden, you, you know, if you don't talk about it, then it just kind of, it dissipates. And we want to make sure that we continue to talk about what's our vision as a church? What are we here for? What are we gathered here for? What do we want to accomplish? What do we believe God has put us here for? So we're going to start that series next week. That'll be a four-week series, and we hope you will join us for that series. Uh, in September of 1942, very prominent Jewish um, uh, psychotherapist from Vienna, Austria, named Viktor Frankl, was arrested and transported to the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp along with his pregnant wife and uh, his parents and his sister. Three years later, after the camp was liberated, uh, everyone in the family was dead except for Viktor Frankl. Even in the concentration camps, uh, Frankl couldn't help but be a psychotherapist and observe you know, his own reaction to, to suffering and and how other people in the camp responded to suffering. And in 1946, Frankel published a, a very influential book detailing his own experiences at Auschwitz and his observations about human suffering. And, and the book was entitled Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel concluded that the difference between those who had survived Auschwitz and those who had succumbed to despondency while they were in Auschwitz and, and ultimately even death, the difference came down to one thing. Meaning. Those who had survived had the sense that their lives uh, had meaning, even, even that their suffering had meaning. And in fact, here's exactly what uh, Frankel said. He said, life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and even death cannot destroy. But that's, that's the, that in and of itself, that issue of whether life has meaning or not, that's the, philo- uh, that's, that's the million-dollar philosophical question of our day, isn't it? Uh, are we merely uh, a cosmic accident, or is there a grand designer who gives life real meaning? And, and if we are truly nothing more than an accidental collision of molecules, the obvious logical c- conclusion is that there can't be any transcendent meaning to life or any part of life. I mean, if we're just accidents. In fact, C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote about the difficulty of, li- of living with that belief that we're just accidents. And he put it this way. It's a little lengthy, but let me read this to you. He said, he said, I'm starting to fall in love with a girl, but then it occurs to me there's no such thing as love. And this thing I'm feeling for her is just a kind of psychic phosphores- uh, phosphorescence arising out of my genes. Or he said, I'm reading a book and I'm starting to feel noble, and then I realize that what I consider thoughts are basically just an electrochemical field of interchanges happening in my brain. And then he says, I hug a child and I begin to realize that the child is just an accidental collision of molecules and my feelings for it are just an electrochemical response inside my nerves. 
And then he finally concludes by saying that if he believed that, we were, that all we are is just an accidental collision of molecules, he says this. He says, the only way that I can fall in love then with a girl, read a book and feel noble, or hug a child and enjoy it, is if I stop thinking about reality. In other words, what he's saying is that if you're going to live that way, if you're going to believe that all we are is an accidental collision of molecules, then you have to stick your head in the philosophical sand and say, even though life has no meaning, I'm going to pretend that it does anyway. That's what he's saying. Well, in the book of Ruth, God speaks to us across, uh, from across the divide of time and eternity. And he mercifully tells us that we don't have to do those kinds of philosophical gymnastics. He says he exists, and because he exists, our lives always mean far more than most of us here would ever dare to imagine. If you've been with us throughout this series, you know that, uh, that this book is set against the backdrop of a Jewish woman's. Suffering. The fact that the book only has four chapters and that each verse, I mean, really each verse in this book is packed with stunning significance. But the fact that it all happens so quickly, it lends, uh, it lends to a tendency, I think, to gloss over the long road of suffering that, uh, that the main woman, Naomi, in this book must have walked. You know, the minutes and the hours and the days and the months and the years that she must have wondered how in the world the death, death of a husband and, and, and the death of two sons could possibly point to any sense of transcendent purpose or meaning. The nights that she must have cried herself to sleep. The days that everything she saw brought back powerful and painful memories of a life and a family that was but isn't anymore. You know, it's difficult when you're suffering and when you're grieving to believe that there could possibly be a future in which there is anything good or any joy, isn't it? When you're suffering, isn't it hard to believe that? Yeah. But by chapter 4, the clouds of God's mercy have begun to break over Naomi's head. A, a close relative has taken... Uh, He's taken willingly just because he wanted to, because he loved them. He he took the legal responsibility upon himself to marry Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, and to provide for both Ruth and Naomi, and even to try to perpetuate the name of of Naomi's dead son, uh, which really is what our remaining verses are all about. Let's pick up the reading. I want to pick up the reading at chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13. The text says, So Boaz... Boaz is the godly man that has decided to to take them uh, under his wing. He says, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and then he went to her. uh, Sorry, just stop for just one moment. Okay, just stop there for one moment. Uh, When it says that he went to her, that's a euphemism, of course, for sexual intercourse. And it's it's very important that you don't miss something that's kind of hidden in the details of this book. Uh, consistent with the rest of the book, which has just detailed one setback after another. Don't forget that the text told us back in chapter 1 that uh, Ruth and Naomi's son had been married for 10 years before he died, and they had no children, which in that culture can only mean that Ruth had been unable to get pregnant. So here's another setback in this story of one setback after another. Uh, This is a woman who can't get pregnant. Okay, I want you to see what happens. Rest part, uh, the last part of verse 13. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. 
the women in the community uh, said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. And the women, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Something uh, something strikes me odd about this passage, about, especially about this part of the passage. How many of you have ever been to a baby shower in which the grandmother is the focus of the celebration? How many of you? I mean, like if you have a narcissistic mother-in-law, maybe. But outside of that, that doesn't happen, right? It's not, it's not the grandmother that's the focus of the thing. That's not the way it works. And yet that is what's happening here. Did you notice that? The emphasis in these verses is on Naomi. It's not on Ruth. Why? Why that emphasis on Naomi? Well, the reason for it is, you have to remember that since chapter 1, God's reputation has been at stake in this book. Ever since Naomi and Ruth first arrived back in Bethlehem. You remember, in her devastation and sorrow, Naomi told all of the women of the town, she said that God had brought her back to Israel empty. She said, she said that she had nothing anymore. She had, she had no meaning in her life anymore. She had nothing to live for, no goodness, all because God had brought her back empty without a husband and without her sons and without any, without any grandkids. And in this, the very last scene of the story, we learn that Naomi was wrong in her assessment of her circumstances and even in her assessment of God. God hadn't brought her back empty after all. This child is proof that God had been good and faithful to Naomi throughout the whole ordeal, even though Naomi couldn't possibly imagine that her story would end in this way. The contrast, if you notice the contrast between Naomi's circumstances in the beginning of the book and the end of the book, the the contrast is just startling. The book starts with death and it ends with life. It starts with emptiness and it ends in fullness. And here's the point that the text is making. Especially, I I want you guys that are suffering this morning. And I know that there are people in the room today that are suffering. I want you to hear this. Here's the point that the text is making to us. Because God exists, the way things are in your life right now is not the way things have to remain. Okay, that's the point that God wants to make to you today. If you're suffering, if you're here this morning and you're suffering in some way, just get this. Because God exists, the way things are, in your life today is not the way things have to remain. Now, let me just, I want to apply that truth on two different levels. First, let me just apply it on on the most personal level that I can apply it, uh, on on your level. Whatever kind of suffering that you're experiencing right now, uh, I can imagine that it probably feels like it is the final verdict on your life. Like there can't possibly be any redemption of your circumstances at all. I I don't know what you're going through. Some dream of yours has been shattered. Uh, I don't know. You lost a job. You found out that you you can't have a child. I mean, you've dreamed of that all your life. You found out you can't have a child. Maybe a loved one uh, has died. Maybe you're being relocated soon by your company and you're moving far away from family and friends. And, And like you can't imagine a future in which there could be any joy because of that. Look, I I have no doubt that that's what Naomi must have felt in chapter 1. Until she gets to chapter 4 and she's cradling this little baby boy in her arms. 
I imagine she felt like there was no way. Back in chapter 1, I imagine she felt like there was no way that there could be that kind of a future for her. And, and you know, look, you couldn't blame her, right? I mean, like when you're a middle-aged woman and your husband and sons are dead and you're returning to your homeland broke and you've got nothing but your barren Moabite daughter-in-law, you probably couldn't reasonably be expected to imagine that one day you'll be holding a grandson. But get this, the problem with human calculus is that we only count on what we, what we can imagine. I don't, I don't, that was Naomi's problem. And that's, that's our problem. We, we only count on what we can imagine. If the book of Ruth and the, the rest of the Bible, for that matter, teaches us anything, it's that there's an infinite number of ways that we would never imagine in which God can break into our reality to alter our future. Get this. Seas can be parted. Did you know that? Donkeys can talk. Ever thought about that? Lepers can be healed. Dry bones can become a vast human army. A Moabite can become a Yahweh worshiper. A virgin can have a child and a dead man can be resurrected. That's what the Bible teaches us. You and I may be limited by our own imagination, but God is not. If if you and I could just learn to wait and trust... Uh, All of our complaints against God, like Naomi's, would prove to be untrue. He's capable of redeeming whatever you are suffering right now and changing your circumstances in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. And look, I'm not saying saying that you haven't been deeply wounded in in some way. I'm sure you have. I'm not saying that your dreams, that some of your dreams haven't really been shattered. Naomi's certainly were. She lost a family. Her dreams had been shattered. But her suffering wasn't meaningless. Here's what God did. He gave her life a different meaning than she, had, than she expected. But what we're going to see in just a few minutes is that he gave it far more meaning than she could ever have imagined. And I want you to understand on a personal level that because God exists, the way things are in your life right now is not the way things have to remain. They're just not. God can break into your future. He can break into your life and alter your future in ways that you wouldn't even, that you wouldn't even begin to imagine. Okay? Now, that's, that's on a personal level. But I want, to, I want to apply this, that principle, I want to apply it on a larger level than just your own individual level. Okay, I, I, I want to apply it, you know, because our vision as a church is that we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. I want to I apply that truth on a community-wide level. That because God exists, the way things are in the city of Evansville is not the way things have to remain. Let me, I just, I'm going to ask you a question. This is going to be a little bit of a hard question. Um, but I'm just, let, me, let me say it, and then we'll process it. Here it is. Is it possible that many of the problems that the city of Evansville suffers today, is it possible that they are due, at least in part, to a failure of the imagination of the church in Evansville? Is it possible that we've essentially stopped believing that God could do something about the city of Evans, about the problems in the city of Evansville. Is it possible that we've stopped believing that God could actually do something about our present divorce rate? Is it possible that we've stopped believing that God could do something about our addictions or about the racial or gender inequalities in our city? Is it possible that we've, 
We've just stopped believing that God could do something about the poverty that exists in portions of this city or about the racial division that exists in this city. Is that, is that possible? I, look, I'm, I, I'm really, in asking the question, I'm, I'm really not trying to shame anyone, but, but when people who don't believe God exists do more to alter a city's future than the people who do believe God exists, perhaps we're already ashamed of the gospel in which we say we believe. Perhaps we've lost faith that the gospel really is the explosive power that the Bible says it is. And and here's my last question on this subject for you. If you sincerely believed that God could do something about the problems of this city, how would it change the way that you live? How would it change the way that you view the city? How would it change the way you view people in this city? How would it change the way that you view the problems of the city? If you really believe that God could do something about it, how would it change the way that you live? I'll leave you with that question. You know, because God exists, the way things are in your personal life in the city of Evansville uh, and beyond, for that matter, you don't have to remain that way. God can change all of it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Okay, I want to read on. Let's let's, let's move on. Verse 17. Now, the women that, that Naomi had seen when she first came back to Bethlehem and said, look, my life means nothing anymore. God brought me back empty. Uh, those very women now are around uh, Naomi. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Now, don't get bogged down in all of that. I'm going to tell you why all of that is significant. Because I know when you read those genealogies, you're like, I have. That can't possibly mean anything to me. Let me tell you, it does. It means something big to you. This would have been... This would have been a cool, sweet little story about a cute baby and a happy grandmother if it would have simply just ended at the news that Naomi had a grandson, that would have been a cool enough story, right? About how God intervened and all of that. That would have been a great story. We could have just, it could have ended there and we'd have been like, we dig it, it's great, let's go. And we would have been inspired by that story. But it doesn't, it doesn't end there because God was doing more than just plotting for the temporary, uh, the temporal blessings of this little family in Bethlehem. At the mention of the name of David in that genealogy, we suddenly realize that this story carries way more significance than we first realized. God was also preparing. He was also preparing in in this little family in Bethlehem going through all this suffering. God was preparing for the coming of the penultimate king in Israel's history, David, who was second only in fame to the ultimate king of whom David was an ancestor, Jesus, which makes this baby that was born to Ruth in this little town of Bethlehem, this baby was the ancestor of Jesus. Bam! I think that's the word I'm looking for right there. Now, to those of you who are suffering today, Let me ask you something. Do you think Naomi would have ever thought way back in chapter 1 that her suffering could be a part of God's plan to redeem the world? 
You think so? You think she would have ever thought that? You think if we would have proposed such an idea to her, you know, that, do you think she would have just thought that we were nuts? Would, like, would she have thought that we were just, like if we would have said to her, Naomi, you know, you, listen, you're suffering. God's got a big plan for this. I, I don't know what, it, but God's got a big plan. You think she would have just thought that we were mouthing one of those trite Christian cliches that people often repeat to one another when they don't know what else to say? Would she have ever thought, get this, think about this. Would she have ever thought that thousands of years later, people in the 21st century, a time that she would never see, she couldn't even imagine a time like this, where people using smartphones and iPads two continents away from the little town in which she lived, do you think she would have ever thought that they would be hearing her story and be inspired to trust in her God? Do you think she would have ever thought that? Here's the point the text is making. Now get this, because God exists, your life has more meaning than you ever dared imagine. That's the point of this text. Your life, your life. Now I look, I realize you're not the ancestor of Jesus. I get that. But the point is, is that, that, that because God exists, your life and everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in your life, has more meaning than you ever dared imagine. For the person who believes in Christ, every part of their life carries profound meaning. Look, uh, look, as you think about, look, as you think about the, the events of the book of Ruth, in isolation, none of those events seem very significant in and of themselves. Naomi's suffering, look, it's tragic and all, but it's not really unusual. I mean, there have been a lot of people in human history that have suffered, right? And, you know, Ruth in the book, she goes out and she's, she's harvesting in the fields. I mean, that probably doesn't, if you've ever done that, if you do that for a living, maybe that doesn't seem very significant to you in the grand scheme of things, how your harvesting in the fields could mean much. I mean, no, one, no one's going to go do a reality show about somebody harvesting in the fields, right? I mean, that doesn't seem all that significant. Boaz, you know, Boaz's willingness to marry Ruth while it was very noble and gracious, I mean, it's not the only noble and gracious thing that's ever been done in human history. But all of these things that seem so ordinary and so meaningless in a world in which there is no God take on profound meaning with the existence of God who is using all of these ordinary mundane things to bring about the rescue of the world through Jesus the Messiah. A woman gleaning in the field is part of God's plan to rescue the world through Jesus the Messiah. One of my favorite quotes, it comes from a poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. As far as I know, she was not a Christ follower, but but, but she said this. It goes like this. She goes, earth's crammed with heaven. Let me say it again. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. I love that. I love that verse. Or I love how she says that. Look, for the Christian, there's always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. Your sufferings, your work, your background, your tragedies, your triumphs, your studies, your hobbies, your failures, 
all are a part of a cosmic mosaic that God is painting to display his power and his wisdom to the world. The book of Ruth reminds us that life is not, as Shakespeare wrote in Macbeth, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Every part of it, the book of Ruth teaches us, every part of your life has meaning because there is a transcendent God who gives everything that we offer him meaning. Let me tell you a story. Almost 70 years ago, Almost 70 years ago, on a long Christmas day, I know some of you love Christmas, uh, but I'm telling you, I find Christmas day to be the, like the longest, most boring day uh, on the calendar. And, and like when I was a kid, I didn't feel that, but I do as an adult feel that now. They tend to be long days. Anyway, uh, one day almost 70 years ago, on a, on a, on a long Christmas day, uh, a family born from uh, Swedish immigrants sat around in their home in Chicago, Illinois, looking for something to do. Someone pulled it out, pulled out one of those old uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Those real, you know, younger people wouldn't know what that is, and I don't know what it is either. But I'm just saying because I know somebody told me about them one time that they used to have those. And uh, so someone pulls out this old reel-to-reel tape recorder, and they went around to each adult member of the family, asking them how they met Christ and uh, what their favorite Bible verse was, and even all the kids in the family. You know, it's like remember back in the day and. When like everybody from the family would come home for Christmas, and like there'd be multiple families staying in one little house, and so that's what it, I mean. There's like all these family members in the house, and and they're all every adult is talking about their favorite Bible verse and how they met Christ, and then the kids even are reciting Bible verses on this little recording. And after the day was over, uh, the reels were placed in a box somewhere and put in the attic, and then forgotten. About four years ago, on a long Christmas day in Dallas, Texas, my father-in-law, who was a little boy on that Christmas day nearly 70 years ago, had been rummaging, rummaging around the boxes of his attic, and he had come across this recording. And he pulled it out, and, we, and three generations of those people's descendants listened to that recording made 70 years ago as those people, many of whom are in heaven now, spoke to us across the vast distance of time and eternity about a Savior who was alive then and is still alive now. And through me, because I was there, they speak to you today. Now, do you think that those people would have ever imagined that such a simple mundane act on that long, boring Christmas day could have ever had such profound meaning and significance? Look, I'm not smart enough to be able to explain how God uses everything in your life as part of his cosmic mosaic. I'm not smart enough to tell you how he does that. I just know this, that you're right now, that, that you're right now, whatever your circumstances are in your life right now, as difficult as they may be, as boring as it may feel at times, as seemingly mundane and meaningless as it may seem, I will tell you that your right now has more meaning than you ever dared to imagine. And you need to begin to think of your life as a follower of Christ with much more meaning than you have ever dared to imagine before. That it's all part of God's plan to rescue the world through Jesus. Don't know how. Can't explain it. You might not know for a hundred years. You might know, not know until you get into, into eternity how that, how this part of your life right now has anything to do with God's plan. But I promise you it does. Those of you guys, you know, the guys who come and they set up and they tear down here. Uh, 
Every week, they, they set stuff up for us, they, they tear it down. The people who work in the parking lot out there on Sundays, the folks who rock babies, uh, the folks who teach children or lead community groups or meet in recovery groups or work with middle school and high school kids. What would you think, some of, if, you, if you're in one of those roles, what would you think if someone from 50 years in the future were able to time travel and they were come, able to come and speak to you today and say, hey, Hey, I want you to know something. My family and I go to the church that you started way back 50 years ago. Uh, in fact, Christ rescued my family through that church. Thank you for what you did. Thanks for the money that you gave to keep that church going and thriving. Thanks for starting that church. Thanks for having a vision for the future. Thanks for just not playing it safe and just sitting and soaking somewhere. Well, what would you think if someone 50 years from now came and told you that? Without a transcendent God, that kind of stuff can't happen. But the same God that is walking you through the circumstances of your life today will be walking people through the circumstances of their lives, whatever those circumstances are, 50 and 100 years from now. And so you need to begin to recognize that your life as a follower of Christ, even the mundane things about your life, mean far more than you would ever dare to imagine. That's what the author of the book of Ruth wants you and me to understand today. As we, you know, I come, I've just got a few more minutes here. As, as we close this series, I, I want to say this, that if we walk away from this book and we don't see Christ in this book, I, I think we will have missed the whole point of the book of Ruth. I don't, do you realize, I, I hope you realize that every book in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. They're all intended to point us to Christ. Did you know that? Every book in the Bible is about Jesus. Every book. And the book of Ruth is no exception. The author of this book really is trying to get us to see, he wants us to see the real redeemer of humanity who looks quite a bit like his ancient father and mother, Boaz and Ruth. Just as Ruth left her family, Jesus left his father's side to come to earth. Just as Ruth died to her own life so that Naomi could live, Jesus died so that we could live. Just like Boaz Out of love, Jesus not only paid your debt, but he made you part of his family. And all of Jesus' wealth became yours. Ephesians 1 says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of his wealth is yours now. Because Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. And, And finally, like both of his parents, I want you to get this, Jesus was human. Now, was Jesus God? Absolutely. But he was also fully human, just like Boaz and Ruth. Why? Why was he? Why, why was he fully human? See, I want you to understand this. If Jesus Christ could have redeemed us by simply teaching us, "Here's how to live a moral life," he wouldn't have had to become flesh and blood. He wouldn't have had to become our kinsman redeemer. He could have just sort of floated down from heaven and hovered over us and said what other religious leaders throughout history have said. Now let me tell you how to live. He could have just done that. And then just return back to heaven. If he could have redeemed us that way, he would have done that. But he didn't do that. He had to become flesh and blood. Because he couldn't save us by just telling us how to live a moral life. He saved us by living the life that we could never live. And then became our substitute in life and in death. 
And let me just close with this. I, I, I wanna, just want you to see this. Jesus was the one to whom all of the worship inside Israel's temple in its capital city, Jerusalem, he was the one to whom all of that worship pointed. Do you realize that? All of their worship, their sacrifices, their offerings, their feasts, all of their worship pointed to Jesus. He was the... Everything that happened inside the temple was about Jesus. He was the ultimate insider. And yet Jesus was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem on our behalf. Jesus willingly became an outsider for you. And when you have a Savior like that, who loves you like that, is there anything that you wouldn't be willing to offer up to Him? Anything. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, uh, forgive us. Forgive us for our limited imagination. Forgive us this morning for thinking that the way things are must be the way things are going to be in the future. Just because we can't see a way out, because we can't see a resolution, because we can't see how you would redeem this, that, it, that must be the way it is. But we ask your forgiveness. Lord, if there are things that you would speak to us today, if you want us to take to heart any of these truths about how maybe we just, our lack of imagination affects the city of Evansville and nudge us in that way, in some way. Speak to us about that. Lord, I, I, I also, I also want to ask your forgiveness for the times that I and, and perhaps other people would say the same thing, that we have spent our lives more in fear of you than anything else. And that much of our motivation has been about fear rather than motivation by love. I mean, when you love us the way that you love us, perfect love casts out all fear. Why aren't we just in love responding to you, giving you everything that we have? Why are we so motivated by fear, Lord? Would you change us and make us a people who are motivated not by fear, but we're just so consumed by your love that we would we'd do anything for you. We thank you for the book of Ruth that has spoken to us so powerfully. Lord, maybe we'd be a people that are changed by that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and we worship.